Have you ever, have you ever told your kids to uh, clean up the house? Then you, uh, you leave and you come back. And you enter the house and you go, oh, this is looking good. And then, uh, yeah, I know that's unusual, isn't it? But then, okay, you go past the first room and then you open a door to a bedroom and it's like disaster. I'm like, no, no, you still have work to do. You have not done what I asked you. And you know, Jesus told us to make disciples of all nations, not just 50% or 20% or just North America. You know, there are still 6,500 people groups who still have little or no access to the good news of Jesus Christ. 350 million people have no scripture in their language. Can you imagine that? 0.5% of American church dollars go to reach these people. We want to see Jesus worshipped by people all across the globe in every people group. That's why we're passionate about missions and global impact. You see in the brochure that you picked up this morning, a number of projects, ways that we are seeing the name of Jesus go forth to the unreached people groups. These are ways that you can give. We used to call it our faith promise uh, giving. Now we're just going to call it our global impact offering. Um, so take a look at those and know that your resources are going to take the good news to people who, for the most part, have never heard. To give you a report this morning of how your, your giving is being used, I've got Tim and Debbie Vinzani up here. Uh, come on up here. They've been in China for, I think, 27 years. So, mm -hmm. good morning. Uh, we are Tim and Debbie Vinzani. We have two children, a daughter, Rihanna, who's a student at Columbia International University this year, a freshman, and a son, Mark, who is at Regent University as a freshman. And we have been with pioneers serving, doing church planting among the unreached in, in China, in Guizhou province since 1991. And we are reaching out among the Bui people. And we just want to thank you so much for making it possible for us to have the joy and privilege. Um, it is so awesome to be a servant of God and to love the Chinese people that we're working among. And we just want to say thank you for helping make that possible. We just also want to say that we know in our hearts God is not the least bit impressed with stamps in our passport. Uh, really, I think our faith might be very simple, but Jesus actually has that command that each one of us uh, be his ambassadors. I, I hope that you don't think our faith is just about heaven and about being saved of your sins. If that were true, then you'd already be in heaven. God would be smart enough to save you and keep you out of this world, but he's deliberately left us in this world that we might continue to be a witness for him. Uh, we, and when you see the needs around you, try to be that minister of Christ. When we saw people were poor, we started thinking of ways to help their kids go to school. We started thinking of ways to provide microloans for their kids, uh, for their families to develop their economy. When we saw that the, the farmers were unreached, the buoy people, two and a half million people that have never heard the gospel, when we saw that need and opportunity in our neighborhood, um, we just tried to live our faith, to love God and love our neighbors ourselves. And so God has actually been giving us opportunities with 95% of these people being farmers. Uh, the Lord has opened up an opportunity for us to develop a beef cattle farm in the middle of these villages that has allowed us in a creative way and uh, innovative way to be involved in their lives, to build relationships, to hire them, teach them, um, and to, to spread the good news. Um, there are many opportunities when you are deliberate and you're intentional 
and you desire to love God and to love your neighbor, you will be the missionary in this community where God has you. Jim Elliott said, every heart with Christ is a missionary, and every heart without is a mission field. So none of us are without excuse. All of you are missionaries, and I know that's taught in this church, and we are encouraged that you're, you play a partnership role with us in sending us and supporting us and praying for us. Uh, we live in a, a, a poorer part of China, and some people have called it the armpit of China. So I want to encourage you to remember praying for us, because when you put on your deodorant in the morning, <laughs> maybe you could remember, you know, pray for Tim and Debbie in the armpit of China. May they be a sweet fragrance for Christ. Thank you. <laughs> I'm never going to put on my deodorant the same way, Tim. Thank you. <laughs> we're either going or we're sending. Those of us that are here are sending. We have opportunities to support and encourage our partners like Tim and Debbie. Uh, on your bulletin tear-off slip, even though the offering place has been passed, there, there are opportunities there on ways that you can serve and encourage. Uh, I encourage you to take a look at that, and you can drop these off. There's a basket uh, in the foyer there and another place down the hallway, and you can give give those to the usher. This morning, we are privileged to have Zane Pratt as our guest speaker. Zane has served for 20 years in Central Asia, and now he's teaching um, students at Southern Seminary. So Zane, come on up here and bring the word to us. They've asked me what I wanted him to say in introduction, and my comment was, as little as possible, um, because I find great delight in the fact that this church loves the Word and wants to spend its time thinking about that. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, and I'm going to be reading verses 5 through 17. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray. 
Father, there is no one adequate to the task of proclaiming your word to your people, and I'm certainly not. And I come to you now asking that you would do what only you can do, that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would take your word and use it not only to change our minds, but to change our lives. Father, I pray that this time spent around your word would have eternal significance and that you would receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You're in the middle of your week here in your church life, stressing missions. The question that has to occur to at least some of you, though, is why should we be involved in missions at all? Uh, There's a lot of good reasons I can personally think of not to be involved in missions. Uh, To begin with, it's not very popular. Uh, Most foreign governments, many foreign governments, in fact, forbid missionary activity within their own borders. Even our own government doesn't like it and largely regards missionaries as a nuisance that they have to somehow work around in foreign countries. Secular American society despises it. And if you look at the way mission activity or missionaries are portrayed in the popular media, you quickly realize that they find it extremely offensive that anyone would go somewhere else to try and change their religion. The liberal churches in this country have largely abandoned it. And most evangelicals still treat it like a minor sideshow. Uh, You can just look at the calendars and the spending patterns to realize that for most churches, missions is just one little thing that we do and that we pay attention to every now and then. It's also not easy. It's not easy to leave home and family and friends. It's not easy to live in environments that often, not always, but often, are harder than here, physically and politically. It's certainly not easy learning another language, and every missionary here in this room would join with me in saying that when we get to heaven, we are going to go to anyone there who was part of the Tower of Babel and probably hit them, uh, because it's their fault that we had to struggle through grammar and syntax and pronunciation patterns that were alien to our minds and our tongues. And it's not easy dealing with the loneliness, with sickness, sometimes even with danger. So why do we do it? Why do evangelical churches, why do believers in Jesus engage in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? The passage we just read addresses exactly this question, and it links the missionary mandate to the very logic of the gospel itself. Now, to understand it, you have to understand it in the context of the whole book of Romans, because Romans is a tightly woven argument that takes us from the condition of humanity to the imperative of the gospel. It begins with a point simply that every person in the world is equally in need of salvation. From Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20, that's the point Paul is making, that everyone in the world equally is in need of salvation. The Gentiles are sinners and in need of salvation. Now, to a Jewish audience, that would have been obvious news. Of course, those dirty Gentiles, you know, they're, they're wicked people. We know that, that they are under the wrath of God and, and would need to be rescued. And they certainly would agree also that there is enough light in nature to condemn everyone because people are without excuse. Paul goes on, though, to, to give the disturbing news that even the Jews, even the religious people of the day, are also in need of salvation. Those people had had a tremendous advantage. They had God's law. They had received revelation from God about who he is and what he requires of us. They had the temple worship. 
they had all the things that that God had given them through the whole history of the Old Testament, and yet still they had failed to keep it, and they also were in need of salvation. And the bad news of the gospel is that the wrath of God justly burns against sin. That sin is not a minor issue. That our rebellion against God isn't some casual thing that we can just brush under the rug. That God is a holy and just God. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So that every human being justly deserves condemnation and hell. This bad news is the absolutely essential context for understanding the good news of the gospel. If you don't understand the bad news, the good news will not be good news to you. Uh, If you think of yourself as being basically okay, and in the deceptiveness of sin, that's how we tend often to think, then you will not feel any need for a gospel. You will not feel any need for a savior. Uh, You will think, I'm doing just fine on my own. But when you grasp the biblical picture of humanity, that every one of us has rebelled against God, that that rebellion pervades every aspect of our being, that that rebellion makes us properly offensive to God, and that rebellion subjects us to condemnation from God, then you're in a position to hear the good news and understand it as good news. But this bad news is also the absolutely essential context for understanding the imperative of missions. Those who have not heard the gospel are lost. One of the things that's been disturbing to me on returning to the States is the discovery, even in evangelical circles, of this this sort of vague inclusivism or universalism that seems to assume that if if the gospel hasn't reached someone, well, then God will find some other way to, to help them out. This is God's only plan. And people who have not heard are destined for condemnation, not because they haven't heard the gospel, but because they, like us, are sinners, justly deserving the wrath of God. God has graciously provided an undeserved escape from that condemnation, but no one has the right to anything other than hell. So that's the bad news that Paul deals with from 118 to 320. Starting with 321, there's this glorious transition in Paul's argument as he goes from our problem to God's gloriously gracious solution. Jesus is God's gracious deliverance from our sin. Because God is rich in mercy, he has provided a substitute for us to bear the wrath that our sins deserve. The word that he uses is is a, a rich word, but one we don't use very much in common conversation. He describes Jesus as the propitiation whom God presented in our place. That word means a substitute who bore the wrath of God on himself that we deserve. We deserve the condemnation. Jesus received the condemnation. He deserved acquittal. We received acquittal. He swapped places with us and took on himself the punishment that we deserved and now has imputed to us, has granted to us his right standing with God even as he took on himself our guilt and the punishment that was due to that guilt. Jesus is God's solution to our problem. But he almost immediately makes it very clear 
that the only way we can lay hold of that deliverance, the only way we can lay hold of that right standing with God is through faith. Now, obedience would do it. It is possible to earn your way to heaven. I want to be very clear on that. It is entirely possible for anyone who, from the instant of conception until the instant of death, is absolutely and completely and totally holy and perfect, not only in in act and word, but also in attitude. So if you can be absolutely perfect every second of your life, you can earn your way to heaven. Having eliminated the whole human race, we now go to where we all actually stand. Uh, the, The testimony of Scripture is that from the time of Adam, every one of us inherits both guilt and corruption from him. And so none of us can stand on our own before a holy God. Good works cannot outweigh bad works. I know that's a popular idea, but when you think about it, it's nonsense. Now, let me paint a scenario for you. You have a mass murderer, all right? Now, this mass murderer works in a soup kitchen, feeding the hungry. So the mass murderer comes before the judge, having been arrested and caught, and he says, okay, so you murdered, you know, 27 people over the last five years, but but your work in the soup kitchen outweighs that, so I'm going to declare you not guilty. How would we feel about that? We would not be happy. All the work in the soup kitchen that you can do is not going to make up for murdering 27 people. Good works can't outweigh bad works. The only thing that can justify a sinner before God is faith. Faith meaning a lively, all-abandoning trust in Jesus that is accompanied by repentance as two sides of one coin. So that's the simple presentation of the gospel that Paul has given, that we are guilty sinners, that God has provided for our deliverance through Jesus, God himself become a human being who died in our place to bear the wrath our sins deserve, and that we receive that gift of deliverance through repentance from our sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, being a Jew and loving his own people, as, as he should, is deeply concerned about the status of his own people. And so at this point in the argument then, uh, beginning with chapter 9, he says, what about Israel? What about the people who had all those advantages, who, people who had the law and the promises and the temple worship and all of that? Well, in chapter 9, he discusses the reality of election, uh, the reality that God is sovereign in salvation. He also describes his own people as those who had zeal but without knowledge, and it is very clear that zeal without knowledge is not sufficient, that no one is saved just by being zealous. It must be zealous for the right things with the right understanding. And he then begins to talk about the logic of the gospel and how it impacts the imperative of global evangelism. That brings us to our text this morning. He begins by making it clear once again, as he already has, that everyone is saved in the same way. Now, he puts it three different ways, but they're all parallel to one another within this passage. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's interesting there that he combines quite a number of things in this description of the way of salvation. Confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord relates to the person of Jesus, that he is Lord. Believing in your heart God raised him from the dead relates to the work of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus as the culmination of his death and resurrection 
and the saving work he accomplished in that. So both the person and work of Christ are essential to our salvation, and also both internal belief and external confession are necessary. It's something that happens inside, but it expresses itself in public. Uh, Our culture likes to privatize faith. Scripture knows nothing of a privatized faith. A faith that is entirely private is no faith at all. It is both internal and external at the same time. He also says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. That belief preserves us from the ultimate disgrace of condemnation in the last day. And that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, calling on the name of the Lord is a cry for deliverance, indeed, but it's more than that. In the Old Testament, you may remember that there were a number of times someone like Abraham would go to a new place, he would build an altar, and he would call on the name of the Lord. That's a phrase you find repeatedly. That calling on the name of the Lord is an act of worship and a declaration of allegiance. It is a statement of commitment. When he called on the name of the Lord at that new altar, he was declaring, I belong to this God and to none other. And so calling on the name of the Lord for salvation means both a cry for deliverance and a declaration of complete and total allegiance in this God. And the point of what he's saying here is that everyone, Jew and Gentile, far and near, are saved this way and this way only. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ, a faith that expresses itself in public confession and repentance from sin, that someone can be saved. So then he, goes, he launches into the logic of salvation as the logic of missions. Everyone is a sinner under God's wrath. Everyone's in need of salvation. The only way to be saved is to confess, to believe, to call on his name. But here's the point. Calling on God's name requires faith. It is not a magic formula. You can't simply say the sinner's prayer and it work like some sort of ritual incantation that automatically saves you. Public confession, verbal confession, that is not an expression of faith that is on the inside is in fact of no value whatsoever. We are not magicians in our understanding of the way of salvation. So you have to have faith for your calling to actually accomplish your deliverance. But faith requires hearing the gospel. There is a content to saving faith. It is not just a general sense of confidence that everything's going to come out all right. Uh, It is not faith in some God or some religion. It is faith with a specific content, and that content is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and if faith requires hearing the content, hearing requires a speaker. It requires communication. The content of the gospel is unavailable apart from the word of God and the witness of his people. Although there is enough light in nature to condemn someone because they're without excuse, because of the way we have dug ourselves in a hole with our sin, there is not enough light in nature to save someone. So no one can exercise saving faith without hearing the specific content of the gospel proclaimed to them by a witness 
or read by them from the written word of God. And speakers must be sent. This is God's appointed means. This speaking is not just a haphazard event. It's not, well, if someone just happens to be around a Christian, then hopefully they'll hear the gospel. This is an intentional and strategic procedure that Paul is outlining here. This involves deliberate planning. It involves intentional resourcing. It involves proactive communication. And it involves prioritized destinations to make sure that everyone hears the message that is the only source of salvation. So thus, the logic of the gospel impels us to missionary activity. Everyone is deservedly lost and under condemnation. Only solution is the gospel. Only way to benefit from the gospel is faith. Faith has a content that must be heard and known before it can be believed. Hearing requires a speaker, and speakers must be sent deliberately and strategically. Therefore, if you believe the gospel, you must be committed to missions. Because if you believe the gospel, you have committed your life to a message whose logic impels you to an understanding of the priority of proclamation of that gospel to everyone who has not yet heard. So, what do we do with that? What do we do with that logic? What are the implications for us as believers of the logic of the gospel as Paul has laid it out for us? The first thing I would say is grasp the gospel yourself. I am sure that in a group this size, there are people here, people listening to my voice, who have not yet repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And there is no hope for you apart from that. Understand yourself to be a sinner. Understand yourself to be under the wrath of God. Understand that Jesus is the only solution to that problem. Repent of your sins and trust in him. But to those, those of us here who are Christians, does that mean we can just walk on from the gospel and not have to look back or think about it again? Absolutely not. Those of us who are believers need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We need to be gospel-saturated people. We need to be reminded constantly of the implications of the gospel for our lives and for the way we spend our lives in the labor and service we do for Christ. For believers, the gospel should produce in us a deep sense of humility. There is absolutely no room for arrogance or pride or any sense of self-importance if you have grabbed hold of the bad news that is the context for the good news. If you have understood yourself to be a sinner who was so bad off that it took nothing less than the murder of the Son of God to redeem you, and then you have no room for boasting. And if you preach the gospel to yourself daily, it should result in a posture of humility, both toward other believers and toward the world. It should also produce in you and in me compassion as we recognize the horrible fate from which we were rescued. It should provoke us to compassion toward those who have not yet received that glorious gift. We should tremble with fear for the people who are destined for hell if we really believe that it is true. It should reorder our values. Once we have grabbed hold of the gospel, once we have realized that the things of this world that we had invested our lives in are in fact fickle and ultimately temporary and will disappear, if we realize that the true treasure is the gospel, 
then we will reorder the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the things we invest our energy in. We will reorder the things that we value to value the things of God and not be worldly Christians who profess the gospel but live just like everybody else. It'll also give us joyful confidence. One of the things that we got asked a lot was, you, you live in Central Asia, isn't it dangerous over there? Well, well, yeah, um, although to be honest, the closest I ever came to dying was in a car accident in Virginia. And uh, one of the city, the, the last city we lived in in Central Asia, frankly, was safer than the city I live in now. But that's just sort of irrelevant. Um, I know that my life is held securely in the hands of a sovereign God. I know that because Jesus has died and risen again and had done so in my place, that I will spend eternity with him. I know that when I die, I am launching into glory and joy beyond what I can even imagine at this point. Therefore, any earthly setback, including death, should no longer have any power over me. If I really believe the gospel, then the fact that, that the work of the gospel is dangerous should simply be irrelevant, because the worst thing that can happen to me is that for which I most thoroughly yearn, which is that I'll be face-to-face -face with my Savior. It should give us joyful confidence in our obedience to Christ as we preach the gospel to ourselves daily. So that's the first thing. Grasp the gospel yourself. Secondly, share the gospel here. If you're a believer, start where you are. As I mentioned on Friday night, Paul could say that he had fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way around to, uh, to Croatia because he had planted churches and he had confidence that those churches were sharing the gospel in the places where he had left them behind. That is the task of believers. The International Mission Board will not, in fact, accept anyone as a missionary candidate who is not actively sharing the gospel where they are. Because if you're not doing it where it's easier, you're not going to suddenly start doing it where it's harder. And it should be part of your lifestyle right here. Now, compared to the places I have lived, this is an astonishingly gospel-saturated place. And there are lots of Christians here, and there are lots of churches. There are also lots of lost people around you. And given the number of Christians in churches, it is inexcusable that there should be a lost person in Charleston, South Carolina, who has not heard the gospel. Inexcusable. Because there are so many witnesses here. Share the gospel right here where you are. Thirdly, given the logic of the gospel, and given the heart that God has for the world, it literally goes from Genesis to Revelation, become a student of the world. Forsake typical American parochialism. One of the great frustrations of my children is, is, has been coming back to the United States and talking to other kids their age who have absolutely no clue where the places are where they have lived. And uh, it's actually kind of embarrassing to get over there. They know all about our country, and most Americans know absolutely nothing about theirs. Uh, I don't even watch American news sources because they are so tightly focused just on this country. But if you have been adopted by a father who is passionate about the world, you ought to share that passion. And I would encourage you to become a student of the world. Learn from secular news sources and learn from international secular news sources. Learn from missionary sources, but get to know the world that is on your father's heart. And then take that knowledge of the world and turn it into fuel for prayer. 
Pray like you mean it. Be devoted to prayer. Don't just dabble in it. Pray over the news. Pray over prayer requests from missionaries. Pray specifically and strategically. It's a supernatural battle. And we were very much aware in any number of points in our career overseas that we were being upheld and sustained and the work was being advanced on the wings of the prayers of God's people. God likes to do things in answers to prayer because it makes it very clear who gets the credit. And God is not particularly inclined, not inclined at all, in fact, to share the credit with anybody else. And so God responds to prayer and we have seen astonishing things happen as God's people have prayed for us. Yes, pray God bless the missionaries. That's not a bad prayer, but you can do a whole lot better than that. Be specific and intentional and strategic in the way you pray. Give like it matters, and because it does. One of the things that excites me about this church is to hear about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering you guys took up, and then the other mission support offerings that, that you give. One of my great frustrations during the years that I was regional leader um, for my organization's work in Central Asia was that every year at budget season, I would take the requests that my teams had sent me. Now, I was working in a part of the world where there were about 600 people groups, about 600 languages. We had the whole Bible in four of them. We had engaged the largest 80 of those 600, meaning over 500. No one was doing anything. And even that 80 we had engaged, for a fair number of those, what that meant was somebody was trying to get something started with no Bibles, no resources of any sort. And so the request that would come to me would be requests like, we need X number of dollars to start the first Bible translation into this language. And those requests would always come to 10 times the amount of money that I had available. So I would encourage you to continue to reflect your real priorities with your pocketbook and give. Parents, encourage your children to be missionaries. Train them, instill values in them, and willingly let them go. Don't discourage your kids just because it's dangerous. Regard it as a glorious privilege if your kids take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Prioritize proclamation in your mission's activities. There's a lot of good things we can do out there, but the deepest need of every human being is to hear the gospel, and we need to make sure that that happens above all else. Focused on on unreached peoples as you as a church strategize for how you're going to be involved. But finally, my challenge to you would be to consider whether or not you should be one of those who goes. The default in American evangelicalism that I have observed is people assume that they are not called to go unless they get something like what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road, sky riding, lightning, something like that. It should be the other way around. If you were called to salvation in Christ, you are also called to the service of the gospel. The call's already there. You are called to the Great Commission. The question is where, not if. And think about it this way. Suppose you see 10 men carrying a telephone pole. Nine are at one end, one's at the other. And you know you have the responsibility to help it out, to help out those men. Which end do you go to? Of course, you go to the end with the nine because it's easier there, right? That isn't where you ought to go. And that is precisely the situation we face. 90% of the full-time Christian workers in the world are in North America ministering to the most evangelized 10% 
of the world's population. Are there needs here? Yes. Are there resources here? Outrageously enormous resources. You can be young or old. You can have any sort of secular skill and it will be useful on the mission field. But my encouragement to you is ask yourself, God, how and where am I to fulfill the Great Commission? With the understanding that you're asking that with a willingness to say yes to whatever he says. Now, it may well be that you are, in fact, specifically called to stay here, but you have to have a clear and specific calling to be where you are needed less rather than going where you are needed most. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the passion this congregation has for your gospel and the passion it has for seeing that gospel reach the ends of the earth. And I pray that you would carry that passion to heights they have never seen before. Father, I pray that you would make this a hotbed of prayer for the nations. I pray that you would release incredible resources through this congregation to the cause of global evangelization. And Father, I pray that you would call out engineers, doctors and nurses, and businessmen, and athletes and coaches, and every possible kind of profession to use their professions to get to places where missionaries per se can't go to share the good news of Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.